We remain standing for the reading of the gospel. John's gospel, the 12th chapter, the first eight verses of that chapter. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was in it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He was late. He was really late. Oh, they sent word to him. Your friend is critically ill. We think it would help a great deal if you could come and be with him. But communication was slow, and so was travel. And he didn't get there in time. In fact, he was four days late. His friend, dead, buried in the ground for four days. And when he finally got there, this man's sisters were upset. They let him have it. If you'd been here, maybe it'd have been different. Why couldn't you get here on time? But he accepts their anger, perhaps knowing as we do, that anger often expresses our grief. He asks to be taken to the tomb. And then he says to him, take away the stone, the mouth of the cave covered with a stone to keep out the larger animals from desecrating the body. And that's when he said, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus, he's been dead for four days. And you know what? There'll be a stench, an eye-watering, throat-gagging stench. Let's not add trauma to our grief. But he insists. And Jesus offers a prayer, and what he says is, Lord, I know you've heard me, and I think, heard what? He hadn't really said anything. But he has cried for his friend. I wonder if we know that God hears us in the deepest unexpressible pain that only comes with tears. And after his prayer, Jesus cries out for Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Just the words sound crazy. But Lazarus comes out of the tomb, all bound up with grave clothes, moving like a mummy. This is jaw-dropping amazing. And it says that many people believe now because of what they've seen. 
But others made a beeline to the religious leadership slash political leaders. And they're upset. Their anxiety goes to the roof. They're wringing their hands. What are we going to do if this keeps up? Everybody's going to believe in him. They really won't need us. The Romans are going to be upset because they don't like change. They're going to come in here. They're going to squash all those people. They're going to destroy all of our sacred places, and they're going to kill us. But the chief cynic, Caiaphas, said, now, I don't know about that, but I do think it might be wise to realize it is good for one person to die for the whole nation. And in John's gospel, it includes a kind of a parenthetical expression. and says, this was a prophecy. The truth placed in the mouth of an enemy. As someone has said, the sweetest dance happens on the devil's dance floor. Probably not a Baptist statement that you've heard before. <laughs> but the plot to kill Jesus was hatched, and Jesus could no longer move around in the daylight. The Passover was near. The Passover, Christmas, and the 4th of July all rolled into one, and good Jewish people went to Jerusalem. They made the pilgrimage to celebrate there. But the speculation was wondering if Jesus would do it because it would really be dangerous because they do want to kill him. He'll be recognized there. And then we pick up with where we started in our passage six days before the Passover. Six days away of John saying a bigger story is coming because Jesus is crucified on the sixth day. This is an introduction to that. And John goes to the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Think about the music that would be behind this setting, that would undergird, that would tell us what to feel. Such a dinner party. The man raised from the dead is there, Lazarus, sitting at the table. Certainly there'd be a note of celebration in the music. I picture a dancing choir in the background somehow. Eugene O'Neill's play, Lazarus Laughed, asks the question, what was Lazarus like after he's raised from the dead? And O'Neill's answer is, Lazarus laughed. He found everything funny. All the stuff we worry about, all the stuff that causes our anxiety and our blood pressure to spike, he thought it was funny. He'd been there. But Jesus is there too. And he's near Jerusalem where he will surely be arrested and killed. Even now they're hunting for him. Surely the music would be forbidding and dark and tense. But then the music stops. And in the silence, you hear Mary's footsteps. And you see her kneel. And you see her break open the perfume and anoint the feet of Jesus, not just washing them as was custom, but touching his feet, which really wasn't done by a woman. And wiping his feet with her hair. And in that silence, you can hear the gasping of the guests, embarrassed by such intimacy. 
Oh, sometimes words are not enough. Not enough to capture the beauty. Years ago, my mother-in-law went to the Grand Canyon. We even brought her a camera to take with her to take pictures. This is before phones could do that. Much of my life has been lived before cell phones. <laughs> she came back and we said, show us your pictures. And she said, I didn't take any. Why wouldn't you take pictures of the Grand Canyon? She said, there's just no way to capture in this little space the Grand Canyon. So I didn't take any. Mary's love, her gratitude for her brother being raised from the dead, her love for this Jesus is wordlessly displayed. And watching in silence overwhelms us with its raw beauty. But the silent scene is jarred with angry music now as Judas sneers, why didn't she sell this? It's worth a year's salary. We could have given all that to the poor. And as the camera shifts to the face of Jesus, who has been watching Mary so tenderly, and as he raises his eyes, his gaze turns into a hard stare. And Judas begins to squirm. And Jesus says, you know, she has saved this this perfume for my body. When it stinks as badly as did Lazarus. And by the way, Judas, you always have the poor with you. We had them last week, as I recall. I don't recall what you did. We had them yesterday, and I didn't see you doing anything. And I'm pretty sure we'll have them tomorrow. They may be outside right now and you're not doing anything. And I'm pretty sure they'll be next week and next month and the rest of your life. They will always be with you. But if you can't see the beauty in Mary, can't see the beauty in what she's doing, how will you ever see the beauty in the poor? By implication, they need more. More than just your money. But your respect, you're truly seeing them. Judas has betrayed himself with his own language. He's used words about selling perfume, words from the slave market when you sold slaves. When you took the humanity of others and sold it for your own benefit. Judas wants Jesus to do his bidding. He wants Mary to do his bidding. And he can't see the beauty right in front of him. Well, the mood of the party shifts again. They're there before the Passover when they celebrated the death angel passing over and the, and the liberating time that came for them. They were no longer slaves themselves. And now death has passed over Lazarus. Celebrate. But, but now Jesus has talked about his own death. And the music is sad. Death is all too real. And the stories continue, but we really need to stop and ask what this means. In John's words in the mouth of Caiaphas, it's it's good that one person will die for the whole country. But also in the next sentence there in the 11th chapter, it talks about 
the purpose being to gather into one the dispersed children of God. More than one meaning here. Years ago, I told a story in a sermon that's found in the book, The Education of Little Tree. Little Tree, a five-year-old Cherokee boy being raised by his grandparents. Grandpa takes him fishing one day, and down on the riverbank, Grandpa's getting the fishing gear ready, and Little Tree is exploring the banks as a little boy would do, and he's down in the, in the bottoms and looking at the riverbed, at the walls of the river, when he suddenly comes face to face with a rattlesnake. And it's breathtaking to read. And Little Tree is just frozen. Even at age five, he knows this is deadly. And the snake is just moving its head back and forth as if deciding which part of Little Tree's face to strike. And then there's a shadow that looms over them. And there's a big hand that comes down between Little Tree's face and the snake. And Little Tree recognizes the brown hand and the thick veins of his grandfather's hand. And the snake strikes the grandfather's hand. And the grandfather grabs the snake and rips it apart and throws it aside. He says, well, I reckon we showed him, didn't we, Little Tree? And Little Tree says, I reckon we did. But Little Tree confesses, though I can't imagine I had anything to do with the showing. Then Grandpa said, you know, Little Tree, I think I'm just going to lay down here for a little bit. And you know that the venom is taking hold in his system. So you run and get Grandma. So Little Tree runs and he gets Grandma and Grandma runs. And when she gets there, she finds her husband laying on the ground and she lays down beside him. And stays there until the crisis is passed and they can get up. And I said in that sermon, it seemed to me that it was Christ-like, this this image of, of the grandfather putting his hand in the way and stepping between that which would kill the boy and taking that into himself instead. But on the way out of the church that day, a woman stopped and said, you know, I really found the image better for me of thinking of the grandmother laying down beside the grandfather and staying with him until the crisis passed. For me, the God who is alongside us in our suffering. I like that. But you know, finally, years later now, it's occurred to me to ask, why do we need just one meaning? John points us to more than one. The high priest saying it, better for one to die for the nation, but in the next sentence adding the gathering into one, the dispersed children of God. They knew what it was to be a people conquered and scattered, dispersed. The Romans maintained control by dispersing people they vanquished. They were less threat. History is rife with the scattering of peoples the tearing apart of slave families, the murdering of whole ethnic groups, human trafficking even today, the taking of children from their parents at the border, economic forces that leave people in deprivation, famine that leaves people starving, fear that causes migration, people desperate for hope 
for life. But who will always carry with them this desperate desire to see their people again. That's a lot of meaning to put on one death, isn't it? Yet I have often seen during the dying or after the death people from all over the country, the world even, coming back home. And the opportunities there to put aside the little things that separated people. Maybe they don't, but the opportunity and invitations there. And the invitation is certainly there to look at our lives in light of this moment of when we have returned to dust. And to evaluate all that we do, all of our competing, all of our striving in the light of what's coming. This oneness to me is like the moment when Mary washed the feet of Jesus. And and the fragrance spreads through the whole house, it says, filling every room. Did Mary fully understand what she was doing? Did she fully understand the meaning of Jesus' death? I don't see how she could have. Do I fully understand all it means? I don't. If you do, please tell me after the service. But maybe in letting her heart break open and pouring out perfume and pouring out her love that that brings this wonderful scent to the whole house, she captures what all this means and she does it without words. Amen.